Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Landscape Nerd Podcast, a podcast where we nerd out about everything landscape. And I am your host, Macy Nelson, just someone who got their landscape degree and loves landscape architecture so much that I can't stop talking about it. So I started a podcast. Today's topic is maximalism. Well, maximalism in landscape. The catalyst for this episode was an idea that came to me when I was researching another episode, and it just sent me into a little bit of a rabbit hole. And if you ever want to know a little bit more about how I come up with episode topics, you can sign up for the newsletter at thelandscapenerd.com. I send out behind-the-scenes explanations for the episodes along with other updates. But right now, let's just get into it. I'm so excited to start. So I know that maximalism has been floating around and trending recently in the design world, but it's usually directed towards interior design. But I think landscape does maximalism very well. And I don't want us to miss out on the conversation just because people don't think to associate maximalism with landscape. So if you ever find yourself in a conversation about design trends, feel free to reference this episode because it's full of facts and thoughts to make any conversation about maximalism an interesting one. Maximalism is a bit self-explanatory. Designing with more is how you could define it. The other end of the spectrum would be minimalism. So in landscape, a gross generalization is that simplicity is favored. Like I said, it's a generalization, But I think it's true when you have to consider the cost of budgets and when you're value engineering a plan, simplicity happens because landscape tends to be the first to go. So due to funding and maintenance, minimalism is often favored and sometimes becomes standard. Now, I don't think that minimalism is bad, not at all. These standards and methods for building reliable infrastructure like sidewalks, streets, and walls is great because it's accessible, it's affordable, and like I said, reliable. But that doesn't mean the standards have to be the only way to go. And I don't think they necessarily need to be minimal. I understand that from the landscape construction side of things, minimization or minimalization, standardizing things are, it's a friend to everyone, right? To laborers, to designers, to project managers to understand exactly what's going on very clearly makes it very efficient. But then we end up with some landscapes that are repetitive or let's just say they're not unique. And I would argue that standardization creates an interesting effect on design and designers. On one end, people will see these standards everywhere and think that's the design goal and not the bare minimum. And therefore, they may not ever try to push past it because they see it as the goal that they need to design to. And on the other hand, it allows for some parts of a project that may be really elaborate to be completed quickly. So that way you can emphasize a very complex feature or it's a way to cut down on costs so that you can afford a focal point. But I wish we could make the standard much more exciting. I imagine a world where we could normalize patterns and colors, layers, and expression. And I'm thinking about exhilarating landscapes that utilize maximalism. And how fun would that be? 
Have you heard of maximalist landscapes before? So let's define maximalism. Generally, it's defined as more is more, and it is more complex than that. There is a U.S.-based contemporary African design website called 54kibo.com, and they define maximalism as an answer to the minimalist monotony. A new trend emerged in interior design, exclaiming that more is more, maximalism celebrates the abundance of color, rich textures, and vibrant patterns in favor for restoring personality and originality into It says interior spaces, but I argue those exact same words, rich textures, colors, vibrant patterns, all could apply to exterior places. An article written by Deidre Sullivan for The Spruce defines maximalism as about going bigger and bolder with design elements and making a meaningful statement with your home or for us, your garden. It's important to remember that maximalism isn't a direct opposite to minimalism. You're just, you're not trying to clutter your home or your garden. Rather, you're trying to make it feel cozy and inviting. And so that leads to oversized items and inviting color schemes. You can break down maximalism into a couple components and characteristics. Layering, repetitive patterns and prints, rich, bold colors, unique statement pieces, mixing and matching of textures and colors, multiples of items like statues or artworks, and then blending styles like classic and eclectic. And I can understand these design elements and rules and I can apply them to landscape. And I think we all recognize that, which leads me to ask, where do we see these maximalist landscapes? Or rather, when? So let's look at maximalist design and landscape from past, present, and looking towards the future. So if we go back to landscape history and theory class, you can go back to the discussion that you probably had on the Baroque movement and the arts and crafts movement, and then the landscape designs that were of those eras. The Baroque style had its own form of landscape and probably known better as the French style. A lot of us know what this looks like. If I mention the gardens of Versailles, that's French, that's Baroque, and that's the style that we're talking about. The Baroque period relates to a style of European architecture, music, and art in the 17th and 18th centuries, and it demonstrated the command that people had over nature. It was characterized by ornate detail, and I would like to add that it was exaggerated. These gardens were massive. This is a great example of maximalism in landscape because it incorporated a variety of gilded ornate elements, 100 meter long parterres with swirling design patterns of evergreen hedged to perfection. There is never too much. You want statues? Go for it. You want them covered in gold? Go for it. You want a giant pond? Why stop there? Have three of them. It was astonishing. And Baroque maximalism on this very large scale can't necessarily be repeated today. I think if anyone mentioned a Baroque style anything, my thought would be that has to be on a city scale because it's so massive the way that these gardens were designed. And these gardens were meant to be seen from afar or from a palace view. And since the French gardens were so good at doing this, They exaggerated the size and scale of the garden elements to manipulate the experience that a person would have on the ground. Gardenvisit.com shares that the Baroque gardens were actually used for that, for show. 
High society gathered to admire and participate in the theatricality of these landscapes. Like a play, the garden was incomplete without an audience. It was also a physical expression of the owner's power and importance. One had to be there. France was a leading country in this development of high Baroque gardens, and they became associated with the autocratic movement. Versailles was freely open to gentlemen, providing that they carried a sword. The crowds would part admiringly when Louis XIV made a stately progression of his estate, perhaps in the company of his skilled designer, André Lenotte. The Baroque or the French-style garden did fall out of favor pretty quickly because of economic troubles and wars and civil unrest became prevalent in the region. The gardens were far too expensive to maintain, and they used too much manpower. Many of these large-scale palatial gardens were converted to the trendier, natural-ish, lower-maintenance English-style garden. So to sum up, the Baroque style was big and grand, ornate, and is still characterized with all the elements of maximalism that we identify with today, but on this giant scale, which is why we can explore the more direct or human scale version of maximalism that we observe in the arts and crafts movement. I looked to my local library and I rented the book Arts and Crafts Gardens by Sarah Rutherford. The arts and crafts movement was an international design movement with a very enthusiastic, maybe even fanatical following. It wasn't just a style or aesthetic, it was often seen as a lifestyle. Starting to sound familiar? A sense of the old Baroque theatricality, but not nearly as grand or showboat-like. This movement was in opposition to artificial manufacturing, industry, and industrial world of high Victorian life. One of the most famous garden designers of this time was Gertrude Jekyll. Known for also embracing the arts and crafts lifestyle, she urged the preservation of old craftsmanship and material. She designed over 400 gardens in this way. She once said, if I may give myself a title so honorable as a garden artist, which to me signals that maximalism is more than a style. It's an art and it should be understood deeply before it's replicated. So moving on, the elements of arts and crafts landscape should sound familiar and similar to the Baroque style, but I think they probably align with what we consider maximalism to be today with that coziness and inviting atmosphere in mind. Arts and crafts gardens have a formal layout whether that's a forecourt or a flower, gardens, kitchen gardens, sports lawns, orchards, something like that. They're sometimes enclosures creating a sense of intimacy in a small scale space. There's changes in levels requiring retaining walls and terraces, anything to make the most of the acknowledgement to the site and the topography. There is a complexity to the design. There is a combination of axes and symmetry and vistas to make the garden appear larger and use the surrounding landscape as a background. There are just definitely distinct styles in this type of design because it was a vernacular landscape, meaning that they wanted to evoke the history and the historic styles of the region to add originality and flair. Craftsmanship, of course, was important. It was using traditional methods and materials 
And at this garden scale, the house or the home was the center and the heart of the garden. The materials that were used are local and they were mellow and they had a patina. And once again, that handmade, inviting and warm feeling. And then they still have ornamental structures and statues and pergolas, gazebos, things like that. But all the materials that were used are natural. You're not going to find these gilded pieces in a arts and crafts movement garden. The planting style was much less formal. In the Baroque style, it was all about that command over nature. And in this arts and crafts movement, it was about working with nature. So within the garden beds, the plants were allowed to grow freely. You didn't have the extreme topiary or trimming. And also the plants that were chosen were classic or traditional. Maybe they even had culinary herbal uses. So here we are now today. What does maximalism in landscape look like today? We've gone through a myriad of style movements and eras since the arts and crafts movement, but it led me to wonder why don't we dress things up a little bit more? You know, where is the color? Where do we find these maximalist landscapes today? And let me preface this with my thought of where to find them didn't come out of thin air. I was questioning my own preference for small details over broad design gestures because I was recognizing a contrast between what I saw growing up versus what I see now and the history that I learned versus what I was taught in school. So yes, I grew up seeing American landscapes, of course, but I also grew up seeing Asian gardens, tropical, bountiful, and ornate places. I remember that Thai gardens and temples have gilded pavilions and lots of topiaries, parterres, mosaic tile work, and decorative pots and water fountains. Public parks and places with stone-carved railings, and nothing lacked detail. I remember that in design school, a Thai classmate said that they felt like all of our designs looked the same. They were not trying to be rude or offend anyone at all, but I remember feeling <laughs> offended, but also agreeing with them. I thought, yeah, we are all learning and we all go on site visits and these are the pretty typical things that we would see and we do use some of the same materials and same construction methods. And that's not a bad thing. We're just observing what we see so that we can create good work. But I was also offended because they were playing on a real insecurity, right? I think we can all relate. You want your work to be unique and special. And it's true that maybe it's not when you start to use the landscape around you as inspiration. But we have this strong desire to produce recognizable work because this is the style that's being built now. And we're trying to keep up. And this is what we need to do in order to get a job, play it safe so that my future employer sees that I'm capable of competent work. And for the unique stuff, I'll get there eventually. I think that's the thought behind it. So I figured instead of being offended, I should get educated. So I wanted to look towards the East to discover more about maximalism in landscape. For the sake of this episode, and to stay somewhat on topic, I'm only going to focus on regions that I have visited or I'm more familiar with, which is Southeast Asia. 
There are some wonderful resources for other regions that I will link in the resources page of the website, but I'm not going to speak on them because there are much more knowledgeable people than me who can do a much better job. Also, I have an entire Thai gardens episode in the works, so there's more information to come. Okay, back to maximalism. So in my research for maximalist design in the eastern part of the globe, I hit a little snag, which was understanding the language in the text of design documents. And I just thought, shame on me for not paying attention more when my mom was speaking or writing Thai while growing up. But I was able to find something. There is this incredible studio based out of Thailand and Bali called Bensley. This studio is an inclusive design hotelier. They design from the outside in. The landscape and the hotel building itself to the artwork on the walls and the uniforms of the staff. Lucky for me and the research... This is all in English. The studio was started by an American landscape architect, Bill Bensley, who followed his Thai professor from his time in Harvard to Singapore, then to Bali, and then to Thailand. And he's been there ever since. I don't think that I've connected or resonated with a design mission or approach more quickly than I did when looking up the works of a studio. It's eccentric, it's maximalist, and it's baroque and centered around escapism, which makes a lot of sense. He's a hotel designer, and he says no one wants to go on vacation to a boring place. And I couldn't agree more. Like in the arts and crafts movement, the studio believes in using and emphasizing local materials and heritage styles. They are environmentalists and and are utilizing the theatricality of maximalism to fund the philanthropic projects and reclaim land for public use. No one who is listening right now should be surprised if I pack up my family and go to move to Bali just to work for Bensley for a little bit. (laughs) I highly recommend checking out their projects. I will link them in the website show notes, of course. The studio has a book called Paradise by Design, and Bill Bensley has also written another coffee table book called Escapism. And I am a huge fan of escapism, be it books or movies, art, food, but especially in landscape. So I wonder, is that what maximalism really is? Is it an escape? Or is it a lifestyle like the Baroque and the arts and crafts movement? Or is it both? Very possibly. Especially when you look at the designed escapism that is amusement parks or theme parks. Particularly Disney amusement parks. The most magical place on earth is very much designed to be that way. Disney's landscape design team is small but intense, as you could imagine their title of Imagineer requires them to be. It's funny that the research across the globe led me right back to the west coast of the United States, because it turns out that Bill Bensley grew up in Anaheim, California, the location of Disneyland. And he stated that the design of the park did influence some of his ideas of grand gesture and escapism. And to think that Disneyland started off as a humble little park, but grew alongside its ideas and stories. There is a wonderful article written by Kelly Comrus for the Cultural Landscape Foundation, and it explores the history of the park, how the Evans brothers, who were horticulturalists and geologists, helped bring the park to life. I will link that article in the show notes on the website. In another article written by Daniel Jost for Northern Architecture, Jost captured a sense of how the design magic actually happens. This following quote was featured. 
We're not afraid to iterate here, says Russell Larson, ASLA, another principal. There's a pressure in traditional firms to get from A to B quickly. Here, there's a sense you need to get from A to B correctly. That sentiment was reiterated in an Ohio State University alumni interview of Jeff Morosky, Disney Imagineering's landscape architecture design studio executive. In that article, they discuss how creating highly immersive attractions and experiences that transport guests into a world of fantasy begins with storytelling. With projects taking five or more years to complete, he and his team are involved with every phase of development, from the helping create the initial storyline and concepts to overseeing construction. Which makes a lot of sense when the goal is escapism. You can't afford to have something built that takes away from the theater of it all. Jost also writes that when you are laying out a landscape, a lot of attention is paid to view sheds, hiding undesirable views and creating weenies, which is a term Walt Disney coined to describe the major landmarks within Disneyland and draw you through the landscape. Mountains, volcanoes, palaces, and rocket jets are all designed to draw you deeper into the park. If you know anything about Disney theme parks, you will know that they also have a fanatical following, similar to what the Baroque or the arts and crafts movement had. People who visit as much as they possibly can, who travel far distances just to escape and be in this park. And this is an important thought I think we should sit with because these theme parks exemplify placemaking and is on the extreme end of how landscape architecture can influence people. I would argue that maximalist design or escapist design is needed as a way for us as designers to continuously test ourselves and our assumptions about what the limits of landscape architecture are. Is there room for this exploration and education to learn about designing more to the max? I mean, I don't know the answer, but I recognize that not everyone can afford the experience of maximalism in that way that I have described. And not everyone can zip line into their bungalow or afford palaces like Versailles or even own a home and have the time to tend to a garden or select artisan goods. So what are we to do? Acknowledge maximalism exists in landscape, but we don't really get to partake in it. And we don't get to have it. I don't think that's fair. So I say do not despair because we do have access to maximalist gardens everywhere. Botanical gardens, arboretums, and some academic campuses come very close to what we describe as maximalism. And understand that these places also have their own barriers, such as location, membership, or tuition. But it's more accessible than flying to Bangkok to experience the maximalist style of the Bensley Group. I love art museums and botanical gardens. And if I'm visiting a city, those are the two places that I'm going without a doubt. And in many ways, I think that they are most prevalent and contemporary examples of maximalist design and landscape. Think about it. They have the land acreage. They have the funds. They are essentially theater for the public with an educational spin. Let's look briefly at a few. The Brooklyn Botanic Garden. My phone died because I wanted to build a personal catalog of the Rose Garden there. The Cleveland Botanical Garden, of course, and the Missouri Botanical Garden, where I gathered all of my plant data exclusively for years. I was fortunate enough to visit the Missouri Botanical Garden, and they had a whole display about potatoes. 
how you grow them, how they bag them, how they cook them, how they mash them. It was extremely cool to me, but also that is very maximalist. To be able to dive into that much detail and create a way to display it is theater and is maximalist in nature. I don't want to only highlight those large botanical gardens because there are smaller botanical greenhouses that aim for the very same sense of escape. I highly recommend visiting them in the dead of winter when you're looking to feel like you're someplace tropical. In Chicago, there's the Garfield Park Conservatory, and it has a greenhouse that was simply magical to me when I first went there. The Rockefeller Greenhouse was a place that I visited at least once a month when I was back in Cleveland, and at the time, those visits were free. Here in Reno, there's an arboretum that is spectacular in the fall, and it's a part of a public park, so that's also free. Maximalism seems to exist in pockets, and they are all around us, but I want to discuss if there is room for more of this outside of these pockets. Where are we going? I wonder if we can use maximalism as the way for the future to start to showcase the importance of environmentalism and conservation and protecting our planet and fighting against climate change. So right now, my stance is that, yes, there is more room for maximalism, and I would even argue a need for it. I think that maximalism in landscape is a tool to educate others and show different perspectives, much like any form of art. I would really love to see more art in the landscape around me because I want our profession to inspire and foster that curiosity and creativity in others and in the community. At the very least, I think that we need to explore this more. We do spend a lot of time understanding and learning what the public understands and what they deem is essential in order for us to understand how to make good design decisions, which is great because... Not every client will be receptive to maximalist presentations like a 50-foot long hand-drawn plan as the primary form of communication for their potentially multi-million dollar project. But I am in favor of blurring the lines of artist and designer for the sake of exploration and coming up with something unique. I think that if we work together and explore ways to showcase maximalism as an educational tool to the public, we can create documents that are easily understood and not intimidating to the public. And I know that not every designer aims for maximalist design. I don't really think that everyone has to be an artist or enjoy designing at that maximalist style, but I do think that we need to discuss it more so people like me who do enjoy that style see the opportunities more clearly. And while I'm on the topic, has anyone who's listening, taking a class. It doesn't have to be about landscape, but a class about designing for maximalism or escapism. And let me know if you have, I'd love to talk to you about it. So if you have any more thoughts about maximalism and where you think it belongs in the world of landscape architecture, let's talk about it. Send me a message on Instagram at the landscape nerd, or send me an email at the landscape nerd at gmail.com. Tell me if you think we should incorporate maximalism into landscapes, even at the theoretical level, like in studios or classes. Maybe we'll see these residential scale projects move towards this direction. Or should it be reserved for the larger hospitality and public realm? I just want to know your thoughts, and I'd love to share the responses here and continue the discussion.
Thank you all for listening, and I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. For more episodes, look up The Landscape Nerd wherever you listen to podcasts. I use Anchor to host the podcast, and on their app, you can send me a direct voice message, and we can hopefully chat. All the resources that I use for researching this episode will be listed on the website at www.thelandscapenerd.com. If you want to show support for the podcast and me, consider leaving a review, sharing this with friends and family. Also, there is merch available on the website, and there is a Patreon as well. I will be releasing Patreon-exclusive episodes, and the first Patreon-exclusive episode is going up in about a week. So thank you again for listening. Keep nerding out, keep learning, and I will talk to you soon. Goodbye.